Good morning, everyone. We're a few minutes after the half hour, so let's go ahead and jump in. We'll have some friends join us. Um, I just totally guilted someone into staying who was going to go home and watch C-SPAN with the report, and I said, don't punish yourself. I said, this is when you need to be praying, so come to Bible study, right? So we're going to say a prayer for all of this ridiculousness um, and study the Bible and hopefully help make the world a little better. So let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your presence upon us this day. Open us up. Help us free ourselves of whatever junk that's filling us, that your spirit may be what replaces all of it, that we may be lifted up, sustained, and given the courage to the work you have given us to do in the world you love. Today we invite prayers, prayers for those people we love, prayers for those who need your healing touch the most. Today, we especially lift up Elizabeth Buchanan and her recovery. God be with us. Give us wisdom as we help study your word, that it may inspire us to be different, to be changed. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we are looking at Acts chapter 20. And Acts chapter 20 is a continuation of the little section between Paul's second and third missionary journeys. And I want to do a little map moment before we get into the meat of what's going on so we know where we're going physically. The geography of this chapter is not quite as important as it is in other places, but I just want to give you a sense of where we're going so that it's not a distraction. You're not sitting there wondering, where is that city? Where is that city? Um, So broad stroke, Paul is leaving Ephesus. At the end of chapter 19, we had the riot in Ephesus. Things were not good for him and for his friends, and so Paul gets out of town. And as he leaves Ephesus, he ultimately wants to get back to Jerusalem. And we find out relatively quickly, Paul really wants to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And at this point in time, it's kind of Passover. We find out that it's a few days after Passover in a few verses into chapter 20. And so Paul's leaving Ephesus, trying to get back to Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, he doesn't go directly from Ephesus to Jerusalem. He wants to catch up with a few other groups along the way. And so Paul leaves Ephesus, and he goes north up into Macedonia. And we learn that he ultimately gets to Greece. We don't know exactly where in Greece he goes, but it seems to imply that he's around Berea. All right, so remember, Berea is right here in the northern part of Greece. He does not seem to go far enough south to hit Corinth or Athens or any of those places. And he is also traveling by land because there is a, there's a sense that we'll see in the first few verses that he is safer if he travels by land than by sea. And it's not about the ocean being dangerous. It's about people are beginning to plot against Paul. At this point in Acts, we've reached a tipping point where Paul is known and Paul is disliked enough to where people are beginning to plot against him. So it's not just about he talked too much over too many weeks and the people in the town riot. Now people are actually beginning to plan to hurt him. And so he's traveling by land, and it seems again to be an implication that it may not be the typical ways in which people travel by land, So you might imagine that he's doing perhaps the smaller roads, the more less traveled paths, so that people, it's just harder for people to find him and plan to hurt him. So he's gone from Ephesus up into Macedonia and down into Greece somewhere. And so we're going to just kind of, for the sake of being clear, say he's in Berea. He very quickly returns back to Troas, and from Troas, He goes down to Assos and Mytilene. Mytilene is a little island that I didn't draw here that's kind of tucked right in here between Troas and Smyrna. And then as he goes past Ephesus, he decides not to return because of the riot that happened not too long ago, and instead goes to a small city that's south of Ephesus called Miletus. And Miletus is the place where most of chapter 20 takes place, 
because that's where he invites the elders and the church leaders from Ephesus to meet him so he can say goodbye. Part of what happens in chapter 20 is a shift, for Paul knows that he has less time ahead than behind him. Because people are plotting against him, because he has done enough to anger enough people, he is pretty certain that he's not going to be able to see a lot of these people he loves and a lot of these churches he loves in real life ever again. And so he's taking the opportunity as he goes to, in essence, say goodbye. And we see today him say goodbye to the Ephesian church in a very dramatic, teary way because they're a church he really loves. And so there's the general arc of chapter 20. He, didn't, he doesn't get to Jerusalem in chapter 20. He will. And he thinks he's going to be in Jerusalem for a while. He won't. But that doesn't happen until after chapter 20. So any questions just quickly about the geography? So in essence, we've gone from Ephesus up and around and then back down the coast to Miletus. So he's almost back to where he starts um, at the end of chapter 19 when he, we end up in chapter 20. Any questions about that? So now we can kind of put down the geography. I know when there are lots of cities in rapid succession and we're traveling from here to there, that can seem like a very important thing. The traveling between where he's going and which cities he's going to is not really the most important thing. That he is traveling and that he expects to die relatively soon. That's the important thing for us to begin to take away from chapter 20. One of the interesting things I saw in a commentary is a comparison between the way that Luke tells the story of Paul and some of the classic epic journeys that we have in literature. And because I'm a nerd, it just got me thinking about all those great poems and stories that we all probably read at some point. Um, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about that too. But let's look real quickly we basically have two sort of three parts in chapter 20. So for chapter 20, part one is functionally Paul traveling to Miletus. So it's really sort of the journey to Miletus. Then part two, I'm going to deal with in two parts. So you sort of have part 2a, which is Mm, I mean, the best way to say this is it's the goodbye to the Ephesians, but part one is really <clears throat> what Paul has done. So Paul's work. He sort of recaps the stuff that he's done. And B is his um, commissioning of the Ephesian church. And, that's, and the reason I split it up is just because it's a long section of chapter 20. So we begin with Paul traveling around. And like I said, Ephesus, Macedonia, Greece, probably Berea, back to Troas, Nassus, and Mytilene. And all of that is to say, Paul moves around a lot. And I like the idea that Paul's journey becomes almost like an epic in the same sense as, say, the Odyssey or the Aeneid. These stories are functionally historical epics that people write about characters they know, but they need the backstory. And so I love this kind of connection to epic storytelling because it gives me a better understanding of what Luke may be trying to do with Paul. You may note that in Acts, there's not a lot of theology. There's some, but there's not a lot of theology like we see in Paul's letters. If we take Acts and we hold them next to the letters that he writes to all these communities, we get a very rich understanding of what Paul thought. But if we only had Acts, we would basically know that Paul traveled a lot. And we would have the, the hints of some of Paul's theology, but not much. Instead, what Luke is doing is building a story 
around a person whose theology was already known. It's important for us to put chronology onto Paul's story. Paul lived, traveled, wrote letters, and died before Acts was written. So people knew who he was as a theologian. The letters existed. People knew Paul as sort of a, he was kind of like a little celebrity of sorts. And they likely had some of his letters, so they understood his theology. But just like if we only had Acts, we would only have the travelogue. If we only had the letters, we would only have the theology. And it's, a, it's not as rich a picture of the person as when we have both together. And so functionally, what Luke has done is Luke has taken a character that people knew in one particular way and given them a much richer story around that character. So they had the theology, and Luke gives them Paul the person. And when you've got Paul the person and Paul the theologian, you get a really great three-dimensional perspective of the guy. It's very similar to what happens in some of these ancient epic poems. So if we look at something like the Odyssey or the Aeneid, there were characters in those stories that people kind of heard about, but they didn't really know much about their history. And so Homer takes Odysseus and fills in all the gaps and gives us this really awesome story that makes Odysseus a much more three-dimensional character. Even more so, you've got Aeneas that Virgil takes and fills in the gaps. So Aeneas is the grandfather of Romulus and Remus, Romulus, the founder of Rome, right? We get a very similar Cain and Abel story in the founding of Rome where you've got these brothers, one brother kills the other brother, and then they do something important. So the Romulus-Remus story is very big in this entire culture because Rome is so significant. And the Roman Empire matters in such a great way that the way the city itself was founded is important. And so you've got this first Roman hero, Aeneas, who is almost nothing more than a name until Virgil fills out his backstory with the Aeneid. Why it's important for us to see what Luke is doing here is because we already have this kind of story in the Bible. If we look back at the Pentateuch, which is the first five books that goes from Genesis to Deuteronomy, mostly what the five books, you might call them the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same thing. Those first five books were written as a backstory to explain more about the people that the Israelites already knew. So I think I've said this in here before, but just as a, as a historic moment, the Israelite people, the Semitic people, the Israelites, become Jewish when they receive the commandments at Sinai. At that point, their Jewish identity is, has begun. It is refined and refined over many, many generations. But their history really doesn't begin until they move into the promised land. So once Joshua takes them into the promised land and you get the period of the judges and then the kings and the kingdom and then the exile, all of that is recorded. But it doesn't, ha they don't really have anything recorded or written down prior to their entry into the promised land. Now, they have the stories, they talk about the stories, they know the characters. If they were to say that people like Noah and Moses and whomever, they know those people, but there's no story with them. Once they're in exile, they realize that what had been kind of legend might be lost. And so they go back, and they begin from the moment they enter the promised land, and they fill in the story. What we get with the first five books of the Old Testament the Pentateuch, is an epic poem that ultimately ends with Moses' death. The very end of Deuteronomy is Moses goes up on the mountain and dies, and no one like Moses has ever lived since. The end. And so if you were to just read those five books, you would naturally say, well, but what happened? 
right? I mean, that's, okay, nice, Moses died, and then what? In the same way, Acts ends, and Paul dies, we think. We'll get there. But when Acts ends, we should naturally kind of say, wait a minute, what happened next? The reason Luke does not explain what happens next at the end of Acts is because it's a backstory. Everyone already knows what happens, right? We already have the letters and we're living it, right? These people are already in the second century living what happens next. We don't need to tell them. What we need to tell them is what happened before because that's what they didn't know. Okay, this was more clear in my head before I started saying all this stuff. Is there, ask me a question or ask me to clarify this so that, because the link I'm trying to make is that Luke is doing in Acts something that is, it's, it's uh, filling in a backstory of a legendary person is something that has happened before. And so Acts is like many of those other epic stories. And so when we see Paul going from here to there to there to there to there, without a lot of context, it's not that Luke is a bad writer. It's that the style of Luke's writing is something that has already existed in many other forms. Yes. I am not a lapsed Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic. So. Okay, well, so your question's very interesting because what we get, this first section, we're going to look at this for just a minute. <clears throat> what we get, though, in chapter 20 is mostly a very refined look at Paul. Luke has taken his teacher. So remember, Luke is here. Chapter 20 is the next big section of the first person in Acts, right? So we get a transition around verse 7 or something like that, where all of a sudden it goes from Paul did this and Paul did that to we are here and we are doing this. So it shifts from a third person to a first person because all of a sudden Luke himself is now back on the team. Luke is Paul's student. Luke is, we have to assume, and I think it's a perfectly good assumption, meaningfully younger than Paul. Not, I mean, he's not like 10 years old, but he's probably a full generation younger than Paul. And so Paul's kind of a father figure. And when Luke goes to write Paul's story, it's critical that we understand Luke is writing the story of his mentor. So Luke is not going to be as willing as even Paul himself may be to paint Paul badly. Luke will want Paul to be a bit more polished and a bit more refined, a bit more intentional and thoughtful. And so we see a long section of a speech here in chapter 20 from Paul that we'll get to in the second section, where it is almost certain Paul didn't say that but Paul kind of said that, right? That's what Luke remembers Paul saying. So let's talk about how we remember things. It is proven that we, human people, remember good things. We forget bad things. And whether that's a survival mechanism or whatever biology is happening in that, scientists, neurologists, and others have proven that over time, people just don't remember bad stuff. And so they've shown that as people get farther and farther away from even a bad experience, their memory of that bad experience on the whole, now there is, the caveat here is there are plenty of, there is a meaningful number of people who have, their brains do not perhaps function in the, in the average, right? And so you, there are always exceptions to the rule. But if we look at the majority of people our brains function to remember the best of experiences, not the worst of it. Luke, like any of us, will tell a better story the farther away he gets from the historic experiences. That is okay. It's not an untrue story. Maybe it's a more true story, actually, as we get farther away from it. 
But I do think we need to know that he is not like a journalist sitting there taking minutes of this meeting or taking, literally dictating Paul's sermon. He's remembering this, potentially a couple decades after Paul does this stuff. So this isn't even like next year. I mean, if I were to ask you to recall a really meaningful experience you had 30 years ago, uh, you could tell a story about it, but is it going to be verbatim? Of course not. I mean, God bless. I mean, I can't remember verbatim like last an hour ago, right? So Lord knows in 30 years, it's not even possible, but it'd be a nice story. I'm certainly good. So I've told you all in here before what my mother told me about my sermons once. Have I said that to you? So this is a couple years ago, and I, we were on the phone, and I said something about how she'd like my sermon on Sunday because I told a story about my childhood. Um, and she said, well, it's probably not right. <laughs> I said, of course it is. I don't, I tell the truth. And she said, well, none of the stories you tell about your childhood are right. I said, they, yes, they are. I was there. She was like, well, I was there. You know, <clears throat> and I, so I thought about it for a second. I said, you know what, Mom? I am a storyteller. I'm not a historian. And so, <clears throat> you know, it, they're, they're kind of right. You know, whatever. I'm making a point. So I think that that's really what Luke is doing here is Luke is telling a good story. It does not mean untrue. But we do need to note <clears throat> that the kind of historic accuracy that we tend to use as a litmus test for truth has nothing to do with what people are writing at this time. They're writing true stories. They're not concerned with history. And that's the distinction that I think we have to make pretty much the entire Bible, is the Bible is true. Is it historic, like we think of history? No, because that was not even a thing. They, nobody made the choice to tell accurate history or a story that was inaccurate. Nobody, that was not even a thing. Nobody told stories like that. They told true stories. And it's kind of like what you get when the stories we have, you know, history is written by the victor. Yeah, that's how that works. And in essence, that's what this is, is the people who survived, they told the story and the best storytellers got put in the Bible and that's what we have inherited. It's okay. But that's why we don't read this literally, because it's good people telling good stories that are true. That's as far as we can go. Okay, let's get into this. We are, we really don't, well, let's do it just a, just a minute on this. Turn to chapter 20, and we see that Paul is moving around, and he goes to Troas, and in Troas, he has a short moment where he's speaking to some people in a way that he will in Ephesus again, but in a much more abbreviated version. So we know that he's moved around. He gets to Troas. He knows some of these people. And if you can put yourself in the shoes, and we all know this, if you're looking at perhaps, I'm not going to say if you, I am a talker. And so I totally get Paul right here. If I knew, or if I thought I knew, that I didn't have much time left, and we may have one more chance to kind of be together, and I'm going to say some stuff, and I'm probably going to talk too much, and that is just because I'm a talker. Well, Paul is too, and there is a super little story here, like a four-verse nugget that you have just got to put in your head as something very funny. So turn to verse 7. So he's in Troas, and he's talking, and he's talking a lot. So verse 7 says, Paul was holding a discussion with them, the people in Troas, and since he intended to leave the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we, where we were meeting. Remember, we, Luke. A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. Overcome by sleep, he fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. Okay, Eutychus, a little kid who has come to hear Paul, like the great Paul, 
And Paul thinks, it's the last time I'm going to talk to these people. Before I die, I better make it worth it. He is talking and talking and talking. It is midnight. There are lots of lamps in the room. What does that mean? That means it was a little warm, right? So it's midnight. He is still talking. It's a little warm. Eutychus is trying to get some air, okay? I mean, so he goes over to windowsill, and he's leaning. You've done this, right? In a room that's a little too warm, like if there's a breeze over here, you might move closer to the window, or maybe there's a vent over here, so you want to get some breeze. So Eutychus is leaning in the window, trying to get some air, because there's a lot of lamps in this room, and he falls asleep. He just nods off, but he nods the wrong way. And he literally falls out the window, hits the ground, and he's dead. A little note, Eutychus literally translates as lucky. (laughs) Not a joke. So if we keep going, verse 10, but Paul went down and bending over him, took him in his arms and said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Then, this is so funny, then Paul went upstairs, and after he had broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn. Then he left. So, he has literally killed a kid by talking too long, and all he did was just, like, bring him back to life, and he kept talking. I mean, that's an extrovert. So, it's a great little story. Um, And at the very end of verse 12, you see, meanwhile, meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive, and were not a little comforted. A weird turn of phrase. What that means is they were almost alarmingly comforted because it's kind of a freaky thing to experience. Um, Although I have to admit, if I were in that room and it was too warm and Eutychus fell out the window and died and Paul brought him back to life, I'd be like, I'll take him to the the ER, right? Like, (laughs) you all keep talking. I got him. I got him, right? And so some of them had taken Eutychus away, and they're like, we got to get out of here. So Eutychus is gone. Okay, so that's just that little section. We're going to skip on to section two. Any questions about that little bit before we get to the Ephesians? All right, so Paul, knowing that he's likely not going to be alive for a long time, wants to see these people he loves. He loves the Ephesian church and the Ephesian people. And he wants to see them, but he knows because of what has recently happened in Ephesus, he probably shouldn't go back to the city itself. So he sails down the coast a little beyond Ephesus to Miletus, and from Miletus he sends word to the Ephesians that he's there and asks the elders the leaders of that community, to come meet him in Miletus. And they do. The section here for the rest of chapter 20 is Paul's last words to a group of people he loves. Not only, bless you, not only are they people he loves, but they're people who are doing this right. And that's really important. He's planted little groups and communities all over the place, but the Ephesians are doing something really right. And Paul makes it a point. Now, whether he did this with other churches and we just don't have it recorded, we don't know. But Luke obviously makes it a point to record this experience with the Ephesians. And I think that it's easy, if we read the letter to the Ephesians, it's one of the only ones where Paul is not really um, railing against them. In many of the other letters, Corinthians is the obvious one, Paul's writing to them pretty harshly. Functionally, he's saying, what are you doing, right? I mean, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's you are doing this wrong, you need to get your act together, you need to get back on the rails, you have gone completely off. And 2 Corinthians is, I'm done with you. I mean, that's really what 2 Corinthians is, is I have tried, you are lost, and, and I, I wash my hands. Okay, Ephesians is not that. Ephesians, we know from his letter, is much more, he doesn't let, he doesn't, he still says constructive things. 
but they're doing pretty well. This is a solid community that seems to be getting it right, according to Paul. Paul knows, I, I think it's safe for us to say that Paul has an idea that he is the sustainer of the gospel message in his lifetime. And his lifetime will not be forever. And he's got to seize the opportunity to encourage these really good groups when he can. And Ephesians are perhaps the people that he wants to focus on the most. They're doing something right enough to where they can actually be part of the engine that keeps this Christian movement going after he is gone. And so he sits them down and he begins to tell them in a particular way how they can keep this work alive. So let's turn to verse 18. Paul starts out this message by saying, he has done a lot of good stuff. So no lack of ego. Let's look at verse 18. Paul said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly from house to house, as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. Stop. In that section, what Paul's saying is, remember, I speak with authority. I have done this. I am not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done. I'm recalling I'm a good guy because he's not really been with these people for a bit, right? It's not like he was there just a few days ago. He's not spent quality time with them for long enough to where he's starting off with, you know me, and you know what I've done, and you know I speak with this kind of authority where I've proven my worth. Let's keep looking, going. Verse 24. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. So Paul claims his authority, but he also does so with this simple nod to humility. Yes, he's done good work. Well, he's not going to say he's not, but he's also done this work in a way that is not putting himself first. That's really key. Paul is a spiritual leader. Paul gets one last moment to say the most important thing he thinks he can say to this group. And as he does, he makes sure to note here, and he will echo this again, that his life is not most important. He has given more than he's ever received. That's very necessary because at the end, it's what he tells them to do too, and we'll get there. Here's an interesting little note. Look at verse 25. Paul claims that yes, he's done good work and he's done so with humility, but he also understands that they've had a rough go of it. I mean, remember just in the last chapter, there was a big riot and it's not just about Paul. Remember, Paul wasn't even in it. It was other people who were leading the Ephesian church who were really the ones who were hurt in that riot. You might think Paul says, I'm very sorry that this has happened to you. But in verse 25, he says, and now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I declare to you this day, I am not responsible for the blood of any of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, you're going to get hurt. This gospel message is going to be painful and hard, and you may lose a lot, but that's not on me. That is the gospel, and so it is never my fault that any of you are hurt for the truth of what Jesus has called us into. Mm. That's, that's hard. 
because I think it's natural for most people, put yourself in their shoes. Paul showed up, told them a good story. They thought it was good. They learned from him. They've begun this church. They're praying together. They're trying to do good work, and yet they're running up against obstacles. People are trying to work against them and hurt them, and they are hurting them. Well, it's very easy, human, to say, Paul did that, right? None of this would happen if Paul hadn't shown up here and told us that story. And Paul wants to make very clear, it's not on him. He came and he told them the gospel news. They are responding to God's call, not his, because he is nothing more than a vessel for God. Does that make sense? It is sensible, but it might not be the first thing we think. And we've all been in churches long enough to know that it's very common for someone in a church to make a decision we don't like, and it's their fault. Ideally, faithful people are trying to make faithful decisions not because they think it's important, but because they've discerned that they're called into something that is different. Now, you may not trust the person to be a faithful person, but functionally, that's what Paul is saying here. I am a faithful person as you. I have done what I believe was the right thing to do, and you may have gotten hurt, but that's not on me. That's because God calls us into something that is not easy, and we will lose, and we will be hurt, but... He goes on to say, we'll get way more than anything we lose in the end. We know, again, like I said at the start, we don't get a lot of Paul's theology in Acts, but we do get Paul's theology in the letters that he wrote. And so when I read through this, it occurred, what rung in my mind was that line from 1 Corinthians that we hear whenever anyone gets married. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul wrote that, and we, I think we read that at weddings in a romantic way. That's okay. I mean, no, no harm done. That is not meant to be romantic. That is meant to be strong. Love endures. That's the point. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, is not romantic. It is sustenance to people who are being hurt for the truth. Love wins. That's what Paul says says here. But just because love endures and wins in the end does not mean it's easy to get there. And that's what he wants to make sure they know. That he's not painting a rosy picture of the gospel. And remember, when Luke is writing this, what has actually happened since this moment in history? So remember, he's writing this 20, 30 years after Paul has actually done this. So what else has happened? The persecution of the Christians. Rome has gotten serious. At present... In this historic moment, Paul's, Paul and the other Christian people are dealing with their neighbors not liking them, right? So their neighbor down the street doesn't like what they're doing, so they cause a riot. Fast forward 20 years, what Christians are actually dealing with now is systemic persecution from the empire. That's a very different situation. But because Luke knows that that's coming soon, he kind of fills in the backstory and makes sure that the message Paul leaves the Ephesians, whether it was this clear or not, will make most sense to the people who are living with the systemic persecution of the empire when they read this story. The Ephesians continue to receive Paul's goodbye, but I want to pause there because that's kind of part one, focusing on Paul's work, he's done good work, and he's reminding them that the work they have ahead of them is not going to be easy. Any questions about that before we shift to the commissioning? 
So B, part 2B of this chapter, verse 28. Paul has said stuff that is hard to hear, but now he wants to give them a little juice of hope. Verse 28, Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I've gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul takes the moment to say, harder stuff is coming. Remember, Luke knows this. This is not Paul predicting anything. This is Luke reading back into Paul's words 20-odd years earlier. But he says, as the wolves come, support yourselves. For Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, nothing that you give up now will ever amount to more than you will receive in the end. Now this passage, if we take this message to the Ephesians at face value, should be really hard for us to hear. This is not, again, it's not romantic. This is not easy. Paul is saying this Christian life is something that you choose to do to walk and you will sacrifice a lot to do so. I will go for most of us, let's say most. Most of us, most of the time, sacrifice nothing to be Christian. Nothing. Now, we like to tell stories about how we sacrifice things, but genuine sacrifice? No, 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 no. We comfortably give enough at our convenience to keep things moving in a perceptible way. Sacrifice? No. Does that mean that some of us in here haven't had a moment? Not, that is not the case. I bet many of us in this room have had a moment, an experience, where we actually do understand our sacrifice as a Christian person. Moments are fleeting, and they are not most of the time. Most of the time, we don't risk much to call ourselves Christian. In fact, for many of us, we may do it just because it's kind of just expected. And hey, better that than nothing. But I want to make sure that we read a passage like this in, a, in Acts, understanding the tension of Paul and his favorite group of people who are saying goodbye for the last time. And what is it that Paul wants to make sure they remember most? This stuff is hard. And you will give up and lose and sacrifice more than you even can imagine. And it will never be more than you get. How do we take this? We should be able to hear Paul's message just like the Ephesians did. Except for us, most of the time, sacrifice and suffering is theoretical. We might like to say we would do that, but when the rubber hits the road, how many of us really choose the sacrifice? Just in the last three days, for those of you who were here on Sunday, we read kind of the second half, it's not really the second half, the second part of the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Starts with the woes that we don't like, and then it gets to the love your enemy. Love your enemy is a hard idea, 
And Luke, when he writes, so same author, right? When Luke writes the Sermon on the Plain, which is his version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Luke does not leave anything up to interpretation. Matthew says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the blah, blah, blah. Matthew does his Sermon on the Mount. We like Matthew's because Matthew leaves a lot up to interpretation. We're like, oh, yeah, I am a peacemaker. Like, yes, good for me. No, Luke says, blessed are these people, and by the way, you are not them. And to make sure that, he, that we know, he says it twice. And then he says, and love your enemy. And no, I'm not talking about enemies like enemy in air quotes. No, I mean legitimate, ugly people who hurt you. You have to love them too. People who steal from you, no, you have to love them too. You have to never want the stuff back they stole. People who are unjust to you, you love them too. And never seek the justice of this world. Because God's got it. I've already had three people in the last three days. Like, I don't live here, right? But I've still seen three people since Sunday who have said to me, I, you know, I, I really liked your sermon. I can't do that. <clears throat> okay. So when we put that kind of message, and, and honestly, I think most people sitting in the pews probably thought that. I mean, believe. It's not like it's easy to love your enemy. It is not. That's the point. And so love your enemies. I'm, I kind of appreciate that these three people who saw me said, that's so nice, but no. When we put that kind of idea in the context of what Paul is saying to the Ephesians here, love is not that hard. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, yeah, yeah, love. You're going to be hurt and you will lose and you still should persevere for the gospel. So there's, a, there's much more to acting on things than there is to not acting on things, right? Someone steals your stuff, Luke writes, you don't go get it back. Okay, well, not getting your stuff back is passive. What Luke is writing here that Paul is saying to the Ephesians is active. If it's too hard to passively do the love your enemies, how is it that we do the active part of love your enemies? This is not easy. And I do not have the answer. None of us really have an answer. There is no one answer. But I want to make sure that as we, what a Bible study gives us the chance to do is wrestle with a specific idea so that we don't focus on just the forest. We get a chance to look at the trees, right? Oftentimes it's flipped. You know, you try to remember the forest for the trees. Here we get a chance to think about what, what loss did these Ephesians suffer? What losses have I suffered? And there will be people in this room who can name that loss. And there are people in this room, because I know many of you, who have turned a serious loss into something that is hopeful and good and generous and loving. But most of us have probably not had the experience that is so hard that we could, with all good reason, give up. And yet we continue anyway. And we probably will. And when we get to that point, I want us to have thought through how we respond with love so that when we get into the middle of the emotional experience where our brains turn off, we've formed ourselves well enough to react in the way we really want to react. That's not easy. But that's really what Paul's saying to these Ephesians. Not only is it not easy to do that on our own, but it might be impossible. And so when Paul says, stick together, he's really saying, you've got to have each other. No one of us can survive this. But when we're together, 
we will almost all never experience that kind of pain and loss at the same time. So we get to lift each other up. And we get to look at each other in the eye and say, I love you and you are not doing it right. That is the, that's what I tell, have told seminarians forever is I think the best thing any minister can do, ordained or lay, is to be able to look at someone and say, I love you, that's not right. Because we naturally think you can't do both. Of course we can. We can, uh, I, I don't know how to use, you know, that I always want to say we can like refine each other through the pain. Um, and I typically say like grind against each other, but that's just not safe church. And so whatever that is, you know, we, we refine each other and smooth out our roughest edges when we hang with each other in the hard stuff affirming whatever we need affirmed is not good for us. And our world says otherwise, right? Watch any pop show, watch anything anywhere, read anything. And it's all about affirmation and whatever. Okay, fine. Affirm, it's fine. But honestly, what's better is when we actually say to someone, I love you and stop because that's not good for you. Or I love you and do this because that is good for you. Knowing that, the next day, they may have to say it to us. So we have to give it and receive it. And when we do that within a community, we are able to really sustain the work of the gospel that's not about any one of us. It's not about any generation of us. It's about something that extends way beyond us. Yes? Yeah, that's right. That's what it is. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron. Thank you, Joan, for the biblical reference. So, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I just can't ever remember iron for some reason. So, yes, we sharpen each other through those conflicts. So any questions or thoughts before we end? Iron sharpens iron. That's what I was trying to remember, and I can't. I, and I do not know why I cannot remember iron sharpens iron, but I can remember at least a dozen times where I've tried to recall that verse, and I can't, so... There's some kind of, you know, brain problem that I have. <laughs> Any other thoughts? All right, then go forth in the gospel <laughs> to love your enemies. See you next week. <laughs>